Hello, everyone, and welcome to a Mighty Blaze podcast. I'm your host, Trisha Blanchett. A Mighty Blaze connects writers and readers in the age of COVID and beyond, and we've been so fortunate to be able to offer hundreds of interviews with fiction and nonfiction writers from every background. Today's guest is the acclaimed author Pam Houston, who has embodied the spirit of the American West with her much-loved novels like Contents May Have Shifted and Sighthouse, and the memoir Deep Creek, Finding Hope in the High Country. She has also published short story collections and essay collections, and has won far too many awards and accolades to list here. For her fans, Ms. Houston has a singular ability to weave together a love for the natural world with a love for the people who live there. And that might be just about as all-American as it gets. A Mighty Blaze co-founder, Jenna Blum, shares a lot in common with Ms. Houston. Both are best-selling writers. Both spent their childhoods in New Jersey. And both went on to live in places with wide-open skies. Settle in and get comfy as I pass the Blaze torch to Jenna and the very humble, very talented Pam Houston. All right, I think we're back live on Facebook. We're going to give it another shot. Facebook is being squirrely again, you guys. I think every Friday afternoon they womp us with the sort of squirrely stick. But anyway, I'm here with Pam Houston, and we were just talking about the fact that despite the fact that she writes in this very wild space, like literally wilderness space and love for the land, um, she grew up in Jersey, like me. So we are comparing notes behind the scenes about our rites of passage. So Pam, take that away if you would. Sure. Um, yeah. So as I said, I grew up in Trenton. Um, I went, all my significant rites of passage happened at the Jersey Shore, uh, as they should. I mean, where where else is better? Um, sure. And then I started making my way west um, a little bit. I went to college in Ohio, and then I went to grad school in Utah. And when I came out here was when, you know, I kind of, I guess you would say found my writer's voice. You know, I, I had been writing, I was an only child. I wrote as a little girl, I wrote to stay sane in my crazy, crazy household. But it was really when I got out here to this landscape and um, fell in love with it, that the metaphor, like metaphor made sense to me because, um, because the land was, helping me and healing me and teaching me and schooling me. And um, there was just so many nouns. There's so many beautiful nouns in the West. And, and I wanted to describe them. You know, I wanted to describe the places I saw. And I confused, as any young woman would, um, the men for the land and, you know, thought that loving, you know, that I could make the land love me back if I could make the men love me back. And of course they were all stoic Western cowboys. And so that didn't work. And then um, over time, over a long time, uh, I understood I could have my own relationship with the land. You know, as I say in Deep Creek, I could be the cowboy. You know, I didn't, I didn't need the cowboy. I could be the cowboy. Well, I think you have a cowboy now who came to you after the land, right? You do. But I mean, it was... <laughs> it was it was years but very recently yes he's actually a forest ranger I, I got married to a forest ranger a couple years ago he knows everything about trees everything oh I can see how this would be an aphrodisiac kind of thing I like people who have knowledge I like men who have knowledge about things I like people who have knowledge about things especially things I love and especially things I don't know anything about. Like I'm in Minnesota right now and when somebody can talk to me about farm machinery and explain like, what is that thing? Um, I get, I get really excited about that. So mm -hmm. I get, do you feel, I have so many questions about what you just said. Do you feel like you were a Western person spiritually trapped in a New Jersey person's home originally? And like, what is it about the West that spoke to you so much? You know, I was certainly meant to live here. I feel better here. I, I love to travel and, you know, I used to love to travel. Um, and, and I 
came back, you know, every time I would come back to Colorado, I would get off the plane, even in the Denver airport, you know, which is not beautiful. And I would just like my whole body would relax. You know, there's something about the quality of the air here. There's something about the altitude. I think honestly, probably I was a Tibetan monk in another life. Um, I really do think that because when I got to Tibet, I thought, oh, I'm home. And of course, anyone would say to you, well, that's because the Himalayas are the most like the high Rockies where you live. And so of course you felt like you were home, but it felt like more than that. So I just wonder if I'm not a high altitude person over several lives, you know, but, but in any case, um, I would not like, I'm not who I am if I didn't grow up in New Jersey, you know? Mm -hmm. So as much as I love it here and as, as much as this is my place and this is where I'm meant to be, uh, or, or at least I have been meant to be for the last 30 years. Um, and that may change now, but, but, uh, my jerseyness is a big part of my writer's voice. You know, my jerseyness is as important to me as a writer and a storyteller and a, as, coming out to the landscape and discovering it and having it open me up. Like those two things are equally in there, even though I don't much sound like a person from New Jersey anymore, unless I say water. Uh, water or um, girlfriend. And as we were talking about this off camera, I'm like, yo, girlfriend. <laughs> I was amazed that the word macadam was on wordscapes the other day. <laughs> from New Jersey. Like, yo, I see this. Um, I, I'm so interested in as a writer also from New Jersey, I never stopped to think about how Jersey has shaped my voice, but I'm a person who has one foot in the Midwest where my mom is from and a one foot in New York where my dad was from. Like he never left the state to live anywhere else. And they're two such different cultures and yet they both exert such strong um, influences in the way I think about things, the way I perceive things, the stories I tell myself about other people um, so I'm really interested, like, what about your writing? Because I, I never would have thought this as a writer from Jersey, who also, like, loves the Midwest and the West. Um, what are the Jersey influences? This is, like, an entirely anticipated, unanticipated direction for this conversation, but I'm digging it. Well, you know, um, my narrators are tenacious, you know, in a way that, you know, Western, Westerners are stoic, and I am not stoic. You know, I'm, I, I'm, I'm angry and I'm feisty and I can be really like cutting and sarcastic, you know, which they don't even get <laughs> like, like, like they just think I'm mean, you know, like they don't get Jersey humor. And I've really had to like, now when I turn in a book, I do what I call a compassion read. And I just look at all the cheap shots I've taken, the cheap New Jersey shots I've taken, because that's, that's how my mind works, you know, but I'm trying to be, you know, more compassionate and I'm trying to be kinder. I'm trying to be a kinder person than I was raised to be. Uh, but, but my humor is very New Jersey. My, um, my critical eye is very New Jersey. Also, there's something about like Jersey storytellers. I mean, I think that's why I went to the second person early in my career, you know? You're sitting there and this guy walks up to you and he says, you know, it's like the second person is the language of the Vinnies, you know? And I have that language very much inside me, even though, you know, my subject matter is the West and I am trying to be kinder than I was raised to be. But, but a lot of that New Jersey humor, it, in my opinion, is still really funny, but it doesn't play well out here, <laughs> you know? You find that in the Midwest also and the speed with which I talk, you know, I think people just think I'm on crack or something and I'm like, no, I'm from the East, this is the way we talk. But I'm glad to know that like the sort of the vinegariness sometimes of my humor is Jersey. I thought it was just me being a mean girl, but now I can just blame it on the state and like watching too much Richard Bay growing up and being like, you're getting in my face. Like, but I think it's, I do think that's true culturally. Like the, um, my friend Jim, who I'm living with right now, my COVID buddy, he has always said like, you would never put up with any of my bull bleep because of your Jersey. Like I needed your Jersey in my life to push back against. And I, I think that's my idea too, is that like, 
that sort of feistiness or like not accepting things as they are, like not working with the land and like working with and shaping it, right? But just saying like, no, I am not having this. I'm gonna like push back against it. I think of that as a sort of an Eastern um, dissatisfaction in a way. And also like not prettying things up to make everybody comfortable, you know? Like here's, there's this desire for like a happy ending or a, or, you know, a, a kind of politeness, a level of politeness that just doesn't make any sense to me. Like we're writers, we're not supposed to be polite. Um, yeah. We're supposed to tell the truth as, as, as much as we can access it. And, you know, I think that's very New Jersey, you know, like this, like no bullshit, no bull. <laughs> Yes. Right. You know, I say, yeah. And be, and whenever I swear, I'm like, it's my jersey. I can't help it. But it's, if you talk to me for more than 30 minutes, you're going to get some F-bombs in there. You know, readers take me to task for this on Amazon. I'm like, it jersey. I can't help it. Yeah. What are you going to do, Polly? Um, actually, I dated a guy named Polly. I think I love the West like someone who grew up in New Jersey. You know, I don't I don't think I love the West in the same way that seventh generation ranch daughters love the West. I love it like I'm still amazed by it. You know, like it's not where I grew up. You know, it 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 wows me constantly. Still, even now that we've hammered it half to death, like I just I'm I'm in awe of it. Like a like a visitor. You know, though I have now lived here more than thirty years. Do you still walk outside? And can you describe for readers what your view looks like? And again, you guys, if you haven't, you should follow Pam on social media because you will see the incredible beauty of the place she lives. And also there are sometimes photos of baby sheep and goats and her dogs and creeks and mountains. And when you, when you walk, go like every day, pretty much. I do find a way. I mean, I live at I live at 9,000 feet and the mountains around me rise to 12,000 feet. I'm looking at them, you know, right now out the windows. And um, so there's always somewhere to walk that I haven't walked before. You know, I live next to, I think, I want to say 400,000 acres or maybe it's, I'm never good with zeros, but I live next to four national forests and a lot of it is designated wilderness. You could literally get lost in it, you know, permanently it's that big and um and so you know the stars and you know the clarity of the water in the little lakes and the colors of the wildflowers which we're just getting into now I mean we're in drought but we've gotten just enough rain that we're getting some flowers and I mean yeah I mean I you know I walk uh five miles a day um minimum I have <laughs> speaking of like I have my Fitbit and I, you know, so yeah, I walk, like we've been walking this week uh, on a mountain called Baldy, which is just, you know, just a few miles from here. And it was clear cut in the, I don't know, fifties or sometime. So it has these weird little roads cut into it that are just like this when they, like it wasn't clear cut, it was selectively clear cut. So it has all these weird little roads in it. And you can, like, we've gotten to know that mountain in the last, whatever, 10 days, because, and I've never even been over there. I've lived here for 30 years. I've never walked on any of these roads, but they're, they're grown over, but you can still see them. So you can make your way. You're not going to come along and all of a sudden there's going to be a cliff or yes. a so dense you can't go through and just like discovering that mountain which is literally out my bedroom window but discovering it on that sort of macro level just because we're here forever like we're here every day so there's a, a million different places to walk it's been it's been odd like there's these little tiny hidden waterfalls and these places where the dogs can drink and you would never know that from just looking out the window at it it's all these little hidden corners of just one single mountain you know and I live around 400 mountains like that you know oh again so many questions do you ever this is a Jersey girl question from somebody who idolized like the middle of the country and the mountains um but my adventures are all in storm chasing so I'm used to this flat flat land where you can see all the dangers coming at you like you can see locusts prairie fire tornadoes whatever um cavalry um, but I don't know anything about mountains. And so when I was reading your books, especially in my, 
especially cowboys are my weakness and um waltzing the cat i was thinking don't you ever do you ever get scared where you are like when you set out to explore a mountain what kind of precautions do you take to ensure that you don't get lost or do you have such a highly developed instinct now for the natural world that you can kind of tell where you are i have a really good sense of direction and i mean i am afraid of some things but but not actually getting lost. I've really never been lost in the mountains. You know, there've been, there's been an hour when I wasn't sure where I was, but it has always worked out rather quickly. And that's partly because, well, it's partly because I'm hypervigilant, but it's also because I was a guide, you know, I was a sheep hunting guide in Alaska and we were always following the sheep that these are wild sheep, just <laughs> FYI for, for the, <laughs> um, and so the bighorn sheep. So, so we were following doll sheep, technically. We were following the sheep. So we had to follow them wherever they went. And if that was over the glacier and down the other side into a canyon we'd never been in before, that was just what it was. So I, in those years, I got very, very good at like watching markers on the, like, like uh, skyline markers, you know, like, oh, this one rock that's looks like a sombrero or this <laughs> rock, you know, that looks like an eagle so that I could find my way back. So th that's just a skill set I have from my guiding days, you know? So I really don't get lost. Um, God. You know, I, the thing I'm most afraid of are men with guns, you know? And so in that way, it's not so different than living in a city. Um, you know, I, I'm not really afraid of wild animals. A lot of times when I'm hiking, I'll hear shots and, I'll, and you know, it's not hunting season and like, why are they shooting? I don't know, they love to shoot, you know? So, so that's really my only true fear in the mountains, you know? Like sometimes I'll be out and I'll get caught after dark or I'll get caught in certain kinds of weather. Lightning, sometimes lightning, there's a lot of hiking above tree line here and that can be very, you know, people die every year. Some years lightning strike is the leading cause of death in this county. Mm -hmm. um, so I have run from lightning, but I'm not exactly afraid of wild animals. Uh, you know, we don't have grizzlies here. Uh, well, that's arguable, but but if we have them, we never see them. And um, so I'm really not afraid of any other animals. Do you have, uh, do you have rattlesnakes? Nope, too okay. high. That's good. Oh, good. All right. Okay, then I feel better. No grizzlies, no snakes. But the gun thing is scary because I think. Do you think are people hunting out of season or are they just like I just feel like shooting off? some guns for no that's actually not something I enjoy doing so I can't understand why you might like to do that but like target practice I don't know it could be poaching which would be bad it you know if, if I stumbled upon it <laughs> it could be uh just shooting my gun to make a big noise um and, all, and all that implies um it could be um some sort of illegal operation of some drugs or something, you know, there's any, there's any number of reasons a gun can go off in the wilderness, you know, um, it's most likely just someone who likes to shoot, but even that isn't awesome. If you're a woman walking alone with your dogs in the wilderness. <laughs> oh. No, I mean, I walk in the fields here in the fall and I always have these bright orange, you know, like I had to put away my fascinators with the feathers on them. Like, don't wear your sort of epi trinket fascinators out in the field because somebody will be like, oh, look, a pheasant, you know. But I mean, I, I was all in orange and the dog is in orange and, you know, I'm like, hi, I am a person, please don't shoot me. But I, I somehow, because I didn't grow up with guns in New Jersey, I don't have the confidence that people might not just be like drinking a beer and be like, oops, I shot her by mistake. So I have that same sort of like, ugh. but I think you're much, I mean, I know for a fact that you are much braver than I am. And where did you get the courage to be a, you know, a guide for sheep hunters in Alaska. And which I remember reading about this now sounded like the most miserable physical experience and yet like something so um, vital. And so it was like the equivalent for me of climbing Everest. Because you're the only woman I know who writes about these things. Like you're like the, you know, John Krakauer of like many adventures of like whitewater and Alaska and like, where do you get the physical chutzpah to do this? I think it's so great. I think 
two, two answers to that question. One is probably like a happy answer and one's a not so happy answer. Um, I'll take both those answers. I'll take the, both yours. The first answer is that, you know, I just wanted to be like, I became a sheep hunting guide in Alaska because to me, nothing sounded better than spending six full weeks in the Alaskan wilderness. You know, I love to be out in the wild still, still. I mean, one reason that Mike married me because he doesn't give a shit about me being Pam Houston. Um, one reason he married me is that is that I I would I'll still sleep on the ground, and he couldn't find any women his age who would sleep on the ground, which is you know that's a sort of a fun thing to say out loud, you know, like he married me because like not because I'm so special, he married me because I was willing to sleep on the ground, like not in a trailer and not on a cot and not even on one of those like six inch thick pads, like I still like to sleep on the ground. Like flat um, on the ground with no, like no sleeping bag, no nothing. No, no, I have a little pad, you know, but oh, town. I'm 58 years old and it hurts, but I still like to travel really light in the wilderness. So, so it was about, you know, being a river guide, being a hunting guide. That was all about literally wanting to spend day after day, after day, after day, after day, after day, after day in the wilderness. And at that time in my life, I had to find a way to make a living in order to do that, you know? So that's why guiding. And also because it's fun to show other people the wilderness, you know, that's always been really fun for me. Um, the, the bravery aspect, I think, is probably about an abusive childhood and wanting to recreate, you know, life-threatening danger and then master it, you know, which is, as we all know, who've had therapies, psychology 101. I think I kept putting myself, because I didn't just go into the wilderness and hang out. Like I went into the wilderness where I had to boot ski down a glacier after dark, or I went into the wilderness and skied, you know, out of bounds, you know, shoots, or I went into the wilderness and I ran rivers at super high water. So, and I'm not that way anymore so much, but I mean, I have, you know, we all have our ways of finding adrenaline rushes, but, um, but I, I, I think I was recreating the the danger of my childhood where my father was kind of always looking for some opportunity to hurt or kill me and trying to be the master of that and being like, I can run this river at flood stage and survive. That'll prove that I'm, you know, I mean, I think I've been trying to keep my father from killing me all my life in one way or another, even though he's dead. Yeah, just because the aggressor or the threat is dead doesn't mean that that ever really goes away, right, in one form or another. So it, I think it's was a, a blessing and a curse that writers have these very soft memories and that like people's actions make a big imprint. Um, and then you sort of like write around that. It was one of the things that I loved so much about your work and your collections of stories in which you mentioned your dad who did sound like a asshole. I mean, like, like, a, like a really tyrannical, terrifying person, but there was such a, a wonderful way you did this that let us know this um, and lent a heart and a gravitas to the stories, which otherwise could have been merely thrilling adventure tales. So you provided this sort of psychological template for what readers might otherwise be wondering, like, why would you do this, right? And then you think, oh, but it also was not belabored. So he got just as much airtime I felt to make the, the psychological rationale for doing a lot of this stuff understandable so we didn't have to think about it and could just enjoy what you were writing. And at the same time, he didn't get that much airtime and I felt like that was really delicately and masterfully done. Well, thanks. I, I appreciate you saying that. You know, I in Deep Creek, which is my first memoir, I mean, I've written a lot of personal essays, but Deep Creek is my first full-length memoir. And uh, kind of the same thing happened. Like when I started writing it, I thought, this is only about the ranch. This is only about my life at the ranch. This, this book is a calendar. It's like putting up hay, lambs being born, wood being chopped. This is not about my shitty childhood. This is not about my stupid boyfriends. Like this is me being the cowboy on my ranch, you know? And then, you know, we got a draft of it and it was like, okay, but why is she so sad? <laughs> Like, why does, why does she need a ranch to heal her, you know? So I ended up writing, you know, in this different voice, this memoir voice about my dad and my mom. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, it's just early in the book. It's not, it's not a big percentage of the book, but it made the ranch make sense. You know, the ranch didn't make sense without it. That's what my editor said. And she was right, you know? Mm -hmm. um, and, 
when I went on tour, everybody was like, I can't believe this happened to you, you know? And Cowboys Are My Weakness is my favorite book. And I was like, okay. <laughs> well, then you didn't read very carefully. <laughs> but I mean- oh, They had missed it. They had missed that. Or they thought it was fiction or like, it was just really weird to me as someone who is always writing in that gray area between fiction and nonfiction that so many people were like, I can't believe your parents were like this. And I was like, God, I've been writing about this my whole life, you know, yeah. but, but to be fair, you know, it was, it was, they, those books were called fiction, you know? So, but anyway, I, I was glad to hear you say that you felt it in Cowboys because I certainly intended it to be there. Oh, I thought it was there. I, it was very Sylvia Plathy, daddy, the big brute was like that footprint was everywhere, even though it was just a footprint. It wasn't like this, you know, it wasn't like the thing you were really writing about. It just gave the psychological weight of the thing that you were writing about. And so it surprises me that people didn't see that. Um, but the thing about writing fiction is people always think you're writing nonfiction. And when you write nonfiction, people always think that you're writing fiction. So you're kind of damned if you do all the things and, you know, you just... I find myself explaining to people that I'm not the, you know, 90 year old German woman in my first book and, and things like that, you know, but I, but it's such a privilege just to have people believe in these things so fervently that they're not questioning or not, not seeing some of the, um, the mechanisms. So what, as somebody who wrote fiction and writes fiction, and is it fair to say you've sort of transitioned more to memoir and essay? Like, are you still writing fiction and memoir and essay and you know what are some of the the perks of writing nonfiction versus fiction like what do you like best about each thing you know I never wanted to write a memoir <laughs> um you know fiction is my first love and it's what I'm trained as I'm trained as a fiction writer I went and got a you know nine tenths of a PhD in it um <laughs> I like I know how to write fiction um and I understand its mechanisms. And I've written a lot of nonfiction because that's what we've been asked to do over the last 20 years. And I feel pretty good about the personal essay. I, I feel pretty good about my fluency in it. But when I started to write the memoir, uh, again, you know, under some pressure, not terrible pressure, but it, it's what the publisher wanted. And I thought, why not? They've let me do everything I've wanted all my life. Why can't I write this book for them? Um, I really realized I didn't know how to write a memoir, you know, like I could write personal essay. Like to me, that transition was super easy, but the transition to the full length memoir, I really didn't understand its mechanisms the way I understand fiction. And what I finally figured out after like a couple of years of slamming my head into a wall really was that you know, in fiction, the action is kind of horizontal. It, it pops, you know, if you're bored in fiction, you can just have a sexy Italian walk in the room or blow up a car, you know, you, you don't have to sit in your boredom. And I'm really afraid of being boring. Like, I think maybe sadly, that's my biggest fear. Um, you know, it's, that's the New Jersey girl. Like she's not so afraid of being cruel, but she's really afraid of being born. And, um, and in memoir, like, you don't have that option. I mean, I, I tried really hard not to deviate at all from what really happened in this memoir, just almost as an aesthetic exercise more than a moral one. But, but, I, but you just have to sit there and wait for it to mean something. And I found that excruciating. Like it was, you know, like if fiction is explosives, you know, memoir is like, water running into a field and saturating and then maybe the meaning will rise up out of it but the waiting was awful for me and and I'm glad I did it because I teach memoir all the time and <laughs> now I know what I a little more about what I'm talking about but and I might do it again uh someday um but I'm really excited about getting back to fiction you know I I love fiction. I love it. I understand it. You know, it's like the sister I get along with. And, um, and so I'm writing fiction now and really enjoying it. I'm also writing some essay, some political essays, you know, because I feel that that's really important right now. 
but uh, no, no new memoirs immediately. <laughs> so if fiction is the sister you get along with and is memoir, like the weird cousin who you have to entertain for like a few weeks over the summer, but you've found some good things about maybe? Something like that, yeah. Like that. I mean, I'm finding this such a masterclass in the differences of writing because I am a fiction person too and started out writing short stories, which are my first true love, I think. And I like them, I think, better than writing them better than writing novels. They are like a tiny, simple equation that means everything. And there's something so neat about that hat trick. Um, it's like putting all the scarves back in the hat or something and they come out in a different way and they mean the whole world. Um, but I'm working on a memoir, like revising a memoir and I had never intended to do it and never wanted to do it. And I had a dog I loved, so I was, I'm writing about him. Um, but I do, I'm still feeling my way into it. And the voice is a little different for me. Um, I feel like it's a more careful form of writing in some sense. Like I feel more tightly controlled. And it occurred to me when I was revising a scene that I didn't have to write the scene exactly as it happened because as you said, it could be really boring. And so I could like, oh, I can snip out a few hours here and not make the reader sit in the waiting room with me, which in fiction would be a no brainer. I mean, I would say to any student and to myself, like that's the boring part, leave that out. Oh my gosh, I see them like running around behind you, Livy and, and Henry are like, wow, this whole talk is boring. Like let's go outside and, and play in the Greek. Um, anyway, but I'm glad to hear that you're getting back to writing fiction. Do you have an affinity more for the short story or the novel, do you think? The short story, no question. I mean, to me, the short story is the perfect form and, and I adore it. Uh, you know, I, 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 have, I have managed to write two novels by putting a lot of pieces together because I only really see work as pieces that combine to make bigger pieces, that combine to make bigger pieces. So even my stories, you know, when you put them together in a volume, they add up to a bigger piece. So. So that was how I was able to write a novel, but I don't really, like I couldn't write a linear novel because I don't, I don't believe in linearity exactly, you know? So, but the other thing I was gonna say about memoir, like, and I, I mean, this is back to this New Jersey thing. <laughs> memoir requires a certain level of sincerity, you know? And, and, you know, and I, I'm, a, I'm an honest writer all the time. I am going digging, 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 digging for the truth. But in memoir, you have to be sincere. And, and I was afraid sincerity was boring, <laughs> you know, which is like psychologically sort of maybe not great, but I had to get comfortable with my own sincerity. And That's, that yeah. <laughs> I'm like so excited. There's a difference between like, between honesty and sincerity and earnestness. And you don't want to tip over into being earnest. Um, one of my other idols, my handful of literary idols is watching our chat, Elizabeth Berg. And she also is a novelist who is writing memoir. And I had, so I'd, I've been sneakily asking everybody about memoir. I just realized like the last four Fridays, I'm like, what do you like about writing memoir and how do you do it exactly? So I'm like getting this masterclass. Um, but we had been talking about the difference of, of in the voice also and just coming out and stating something honest about your life and it is a different way of being honest than in fiction where sometimes I feel like it's a freer thing in fiction because you're in a you're supposedly in disguise so you can just say the thing that you're not ever supposed to say and um, the thoughts of tone are a little bit about language as opposed to about like am I coming off looking like an earnest douchebag kind of person. Um, Speaking of Elizabeth, and I wanted to ask about the political essays also, because you know I like to talk politics, but Elizabeth wants to know, we both know, everybody knows you're a big traveler, like you, you get around, girl. Um, and I was wondering too, before we started chatting, how is it for you not to travel right now? And is there a silver lining to not traveling in addition to maybe exploring the mountains that are close to your house? There are many silver linings to not traveling, though I miss it desperately. Um, the silver linings to not traveling, one huge one is that I have been, you know, really nervous over the last decade about my carbon footprint. <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. I, I didn't have children, so I sort of had that in my favor. I keep my house at 60 degrees because the wolfhounds prefer it that way, so I had that in my favor. But the flying I've done in my life, and I've done a lot of it, 
um, isn't, hasn't been great for the planet. And so I feel good about being still, you know, I feel good as an environmentalist about being still. The other thing is like the animals are so happy. Like the, all our animals are happy. The sheep and the chickens, like everybody's happy because we're here all the time and it's not a house sitter and it's not like me rushing out there before I jump in the car and drive five hours to the airport to get on a plane. You know, the, the animals are at peace. <laughs> and, and when I feel like I'm gonna die if I don't get to go out for sushi or if I don't get to sit on a table, you know, at a table with all my writer friends in Portland, you know, drinking wine and talking art, I think, well, at least the animals are happy. <laughs> you know? um, so that's, you know, I'm trying to embrace it and I'm trying to um, think about how my life might be different after it. You know, if, if COVID ever ends or if it ends before the next pandemic begins, I, I'm thinking how I might be live differently, like not absolutely differently, you know, but uh, uh, I don't have to get on every plane I'm asked to get on, you know, and, and so maybe I can change a little. Mm -hmm. um, the hardest thing about living here is being stuck here. Uh, I mean, it's beautiful and I'm so lucky and I, I look out at this beauty and I get to hike and I am so aware of my luck and privilege in that regard. Um, there's no one he here within a hundred miles who thinks like me, you know, mm -hmm. there's no one. I mean, it's a, it's a very, very conservative place. Uh, it's, you know, if I wear a mask to the post office, I get called a name. So I've just stopped going to the post office. I just don't get my mail anymore. You know, yeah, I feel a little surrounded by, um, by guns and people who don't wear masks. And that's that's hard because I forget, like I went to, the first time I've been gone since early March, I went to Santa Fe last week and I just drove around. Like I, I went to the Whole Foods and I saw an elderly friend, but it's four hours from here. And I just went there, I thought, oh, I'm just gonna drive the streets and like look for someone in a madras skirt, you know, or look for someone with dreadlocks. And I'm just gonna be like, hey, hi, you know, hi, we believe the same thing nice to see you out of the window of my Prius. You know what I mean? Like, I, I, like <laughs> I just, that's been the hardest thing about not traveling is not interacting with people who are fighting for social justice and the power of art and, you know, that kind of thing. I certainly feel that. I have the same sort of love of the land being here in Minnesota where my great grandparents settled um, as pioneers, like close to the Laura Ingalls Wilder house. You know, I grew up on this myth that my mom fed me of the land and I love the land, I worship the land. Um, and, and demographically, and I think politically, I'm less out of water than I was maybe four or five years ago, but during the election, I was the only person who had a Hillary sign and it kept getting torn up. Um, and I was really, I felt very uncomfortable about that. Like my aunties, you know, my honorary aunties who I had grown up with, I knew were not voting the same way I was. And it means everything to me. Like I have been thinking, if you don't have country, you have nothing. Like people say, oh, you have family and therefore that's everything. It's not if your country is in shambles. Like you have your health. If your country is in shambles, you don't have your health either as we're seeing so demonstrated, right? So like the, my country means everything to me and so to be in a place where the land felt like an embrace but i i felt untrusting of the people is a very is a really sad and awful thing to say i felt and so i still i'm sort of struggling with that being out here and i feel you also i know you're a passionate passionate activist and to not be when i left boston to come out here to get my puppy and then stayed for a while I was like, I miss marching. Like I have a megaphone and a backup megaphone, you know, they're always charged. And so can you talk a little bit about um, also your bravery? Like if I had one adjective for you, it would be courageous. So it, can you talk about your bravery and um, your political activism online and also just like living where you live? Are you afraid anybody's gonna be like, there's that writer and we're gonna shoot her, you know? Like, but I mean, maybe that's paranoia, but what, what enables you to feel okay doing this both in the real world and online? Um, you know, I realized something and I had to write my way to it. I mean, I am afraid, you know, I am afraid that like if civil war breaks out, which I think we're on the verge of it, I don't necessarily mean it will happen, but it, we're being pushed that way. Um, if civil war breaks out, 
I'm I'm the one they'll come to get in my county. You know what I mean? I mean it. Like I really mean I it. I believe you. I have the same feelings. Yes. Um, you know, and it, it's partly because it's not that there aren't any other um, progressive thinkers here. There are, uh, but they don't say anything. And you know what people around here say is, oh, it makes much more difference who we elect as school board president than who we elect as president. You know, as president. Like that's the kind of thinking. So I am afraid, you know, I would not be a little surprised. I would not be surprised for one second if a little gaggle of camel wearing men came up my driveway. I really wouldn't. Um, I don't think it's going to happen, but I would not be surprised if it did. Um, but what I learned in writing, you know, when, when we all got locked down and the move toward fascism started to escalate, um, more and more rapidly. And I kept posting, you know, and, and I kept posting my, th my thoughts and my things. And I would think, well, I should probably just shut up. Like I should probably just shut up and wait to see what happens. And then the next day I would post again. And I wrote this little book. Uh, and when I say little, I mean, it's a physically small object uh, that's coming out in October. I, um, and I wrote it with an, another environmental activist and feminist, uh, Amy Irvine, who wrote a book called Trespass and a book called uh, Desert Cabal. And we were paired by Orion to write letters to each other during the pandemic. And then once we started, we did this little short piece for Orion. And then once we started, we couldn't stop because we were like each other's lifeline because she lives on the literally on the other side of that mountain I was describing, except it takes like four hours to get to her house. Um, but she lives in a, in a fairly conservative, not quite like this, but a fairly conservative area. So we were writing to each other and we were talking each other up and we're like, this is the moment. This is the moment for women to step in and, you know, and save the freaking world. And, you know, this is all related, this pandemic and climate change and, you know, the abuse of our mother, the earth. And, and so we wrote these letters and we, you know, we would, we would wind each other up so much and, and they really were so um, invigorating. And what I wrote, the, the truth that I wrote myself to in those letters, and it's in, in one of the letters in a paragraph is like, um, our choices as women right now under this administration, you know, are either to be killed or to be silenced. And I guess I'd rather be killed because I can't seem to make myself shut up. <laughs> I'm so, like, I'm so anxious for you. And at the same time, like, I have to fan myself a little. I'm like, I don't want anything bad to happen to you. But I, I completely understand that, obviously, and relate to it. When back in the olden days, when Obama was president um, and we had him running against Romney, which I was like, ooh, Romney wears man jeans. He's a bad Republican. So, you know, that was what I was thinking then. But I remember my publisher saying, you know, it might behoove you not to be quite so political on Facebook. And I was, I said, I didn't become a writer to hide what I believe in. Like the whole point of being a writer is that at least for fiction was a way of me putting on like a kabuki mask so that I could yell out what I believed from behind the mask. Um, but I found also on Facebook that I had no inclination to be quiet. And the more people poked me and the more I got trolled, the more I, the louder I got. And I just take that as a compliment to be like, oh good, I must be making a difference if I'm noisy. But I agree this sort of handmaid's tale choice of you get to either be in Mayday or be on the wall. Like, I don't like pain. I don't like discomfort, but I also seem incapable of being quiet about things. And as a, somebody who writes about the Holocaust era, I don't think we should, you know, like I think silence is complicity. So that's-, and that's also, I mean, also, you know, we're white. <laughs> and so we are so much more safe than people who aren't. You know, we, I teach, uh, you know, at the Institute of American Indian Arts, you know, I have uh, been involved not since the pandemic because of where I live, but in the past with Black Lives Matter, you know, it's, uh, you know, we, you know, I can say I'm afraid the men are going to come up my driveway. And honestly, like I would be the one here <laughs> in my little tiny county here, I would be the one they would get. But um, so I am probably the least safe person in my county, but I'm still infinitely safer than the people who are putting their bodies on the line, you know, for Black Lives Matter. And so, 
so really if I can't suck it up, you know, like who am I to even complain about what's happening in the country? And I have a lot of complaints. So, um, so I, I just, you know, I've lived 58 years in this, you know, improbable democracy and I have benefited from it as a white person. I have fought my way, you know, into a profession that didn't love women when I started. Uh, and I've been the recipient of so many good things. And if I can't fight for it now, you know, and if I can't fight for the things that crush me, which are, you know, the lies we tell to the native people, the children in the cages, the, you know, the, the, mothers of black boys who don't know whether they're going to come like like those things literally crush me and if i can't fight for justice with my platform my whatever mid-sized platform that i've created out of this out of how generous my readers have been to me all these years of being a writer then like what was it for you know what was it for and literally if those guys do come up my driveway i'll think well i got some shots in you know i got them in you know, I don't, you know, we're, there's no, this is it, you know, <laughs> like, like this is the five alarm fire. We're in it. I have no doubt of it. You know, I'm not saying it can't get worse. I'm just saying like, we're in it. This is the moment we either speak up or we don't. And mm -hmm. I just, I am not going to lie and say, I haven't had, I haven't thought a hundred times, just shut your mouth, Pam, and get through, live through this. And then you'll be in a better position later to be an activist. But every time I think that the other voice comes in and says, no, this is it. This is now, do it now. This is that, you know, that's why you built a platform. You built a platform to try to help people. You know, Toni Morrison said, if you if you find yourself somewhere, you know, it's your job to reach down and pull somebody else up. Mm -hmm. I think about that all the time as a teacher of young writers um, but also, you know, I have a platform, I have a ranch, <laughs> I have a place from which to speak and I'm going to try to reach down and help somebody else, you know, because otherwise there's no reason for me to have gotten here. Uh, there's nothing I can say that would follow that and be any better or more inspiring or more. It's like a bugle call, basically. Um, Elizabeth, who should basically have just been on this call with us because she has many questions for you, but she had asked while you were talking, do you feel that writers have a moral obligation to call out the wrongs? And it sounds like for you personally, I mean, obviously you, you do have that obligation or you feel that obligation very strongly. Do you feel like that's an across the board thing? Like everybody who has a platform, like use your platform. Do you encourage your young writers to do that? Sure. Um, I encourage anyone to use their platform to fight this regime, you know, and to save lives. I, um, but I would not say that I feel that every writer should, you know, speak out politically. I think everybody has to absolutely make that decision themselves. You know, when Amy and I were writing these letters back and forth, like here we are two white women who have places in the mountains, you know, like on the one hand, we're ridiculous, right? Like, and we're like justice, you know, from our, you know, from our, our, our mountain homes, you know, our only homes to be fair, but you know, it, it like, we're like, this isn't the time for our voices. You know, this is the time for, for black voices. This is the time for native voices. You know, this isn't the time for our voices. And, you know, but then she said, well, if I hadn't read Cowboys Are My Weakness, like I wouldn't have gotten to Terry Tempest Williams. And if I hadn't gotten to Terry Tempest Williams, I wouldn't have gotten to Leslie Marmon Silco. Like, like who knows what stories are gonna set people on a path to awakening or awareness or to discovering their own voice, you know? And so I think it's kind of an all hands on deck moment. And I think that, you know, I say over and over again in my nonprofit and in my writing, you know, I, and to my native students at IA, like I'm an ally, I'm going to be an imperfect one. You know, I'm going to be an imperfect ally because I'm white and, 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 you know, racism is embedded in the very words I use to try to combat racism. Mm -hmm. And, and so I have to be willing to, to be told off. You're like, I have to be willing to say, you're doing it wrong. Stop that white woman. And then I'll say, okay. And I'll lick my wounds and I'll come back again, you know? 
But do I think everyone should be doing it? No, I would never say that. I think everyone has to look at themselves and say, you know, I can do the most valuable work by X. And for some of them, that's going to be writing like a children's book. Or for some of them, it's going to be telling the story of their abuse. You know, a lot of the women I know, white women who are writing memoirs about their abusive histories are saying, well, does my story even matter? You know, when all these other abuses are going on that are so terrible. And well, yeah, because, because they're going to empower someone else to tell their story. So no, I don't think everyone has, to, I mean, I'm for anybody getting political. And I do think we have language, you know, we've, we have a, we have, we have a tool, you know, in addition to a platform, we have a tool that we've honed and we can move people and perhaps, you know, drive people to action. But I would never say, I think every artist should do it. No, every artist has to do whatever every artist has to do. Like that's kind of the point of art. Okay. I'm like, wow, I literally am on the edge of my chair. I've been sort of like, I'm watching myself on Zoom, like sort of falling off my chair because I feel like so inspired and impassioned by this. I think one thing I find very comforting about what you just said is that if you are an artist making art right now and you're not finding the intersectionality of the art and politics, that who knows how your work may influence somebody else to express their own truth or their own story or their own fiction or their own project so that all of our art can be stepping stones for other people in in that way and i love that idea that you don't have to speak directly to the moment necessarily to inspire other people you can give i mean for me as like I've been talking to a bunch of women who have done these interviews with her in like the lonely young married people's club where we all had these crappy starter marriages, you know, in our twenties, but we all wanted to be writers. It was like the thing, you know? Um, and a lot of what I read then, which was not speaking directly to my experience, but like made me feel less alone in that circumstance helped me hone my determination to do the thing that I'm doing now. So you know, just keep throwing yourself out there. But I, I'm so grateful for your political posts and your political essays. I read you and Heather Cox Richardson every day. Like I wake up in the morning, I read Heather and then I read Pam and then I get up and, you know, walk the dog. Um, and it gives me some, gives me fortitude. And I hope that you know that if God forbid anybody ever came up your driveway in chemo and you went down in flames, like there are people who would pick up the microphone for you because you carry the microphone every day. And, you know, this is, I think the thing we have going for us that is not sort of Nazi Germany-like is that we're a country that is founded upon speaking out and again, about pushing back. So I also encourage people to do whatever they feel they can do. And thank you for inspiring us to do that. It's not easy when I know when you get pushed back or when you have to live in the fear that somebody may come and bring your house down. Like that's, it's not comfy. <laughs> so thank you for taking on that discomfort. Can you tell us a little bit about, and then I should let you go because I think I've kept you for like at least an hour already, but um, can you tell us about the collection that you're putting together with Amy and um, when it is, when it's out, I think you said October, which is like ideal position, right? Ideal timing. Um, remind us what the name is and um, tell us a little bit more about it so we can get our little mitts on it. Sure. Um, I, I mean, one thing I just want to say, thank you for saying all that. Um, I, it feels good to hear that. Um, because, you know, of course I get a lot of things saying like, we really like your work, but shut up about politics. Um, shut up and sing, right? <laughs> In any case, um, I do think we're at a moment and I just want to say this, like, which is not to say we don't need all, all men on deck too, but I think we might be in a moment where women are really about to step into their power. Like, I just feel it. Like I feel it intuitively. And, you know, if you think about Sally Yates, et cetera, like I'll just say the name Sally Yates, but put all the women, you know, uh, uh, you know, the prime minister, Jacinda, I can't say her name, the prime minister of, of New Zealand. Like there's so many women right now who are being like, okay, like the men haven't done so great. And here we are and the world's on fire. And maybe it's time to, you know, the Whitmer, the, the governor of Michigan, I'm not good with names, but, but all these women, like I feel it. And then just my friends, you know, and my writer friends, my artist friends, I feel this rumbling of like women who are about to realize, you know, that we have more power in our pinkies than 
you know, Mitch McConnell has in his whole body, just to name one person. Um, so, <laughs> so, excuse me. Okay, I'm back. So if we're in this moment where the world needs help, you know, like this country needs help, the earth needs help. And we have all this untapped power because we've been gaslighted or because we haven't, we haven't been willing to step into it. And so that's what this book is. That's what this book with Amy is. It's about that. And it's just letters back and forth. And, you know, they're, they're polished, obviously, and honed, but they were just literally the letters that we wrote to each other. It's called Airmail, um, letters, uh, letters of Politics, Pandemics, and Place. And we finished it. We sent it to a small, all-woman, all-power women press in Utah. These women are doing great work with the environment. They were like, we were like, can we get this out before the election? They were like, you bet. You know, we were just writing it in May and it's coming out in October. So it's the fastest book. We have a beautiful artist, um, a beautiful artist. And uh, let me just look at her name. I'm so I, excited. I'm like looking through my computer to see like everything in your study. Um, it's um, a, a beautiful female artist. Uh, made the cover when we talk to each other i'm a belted kingfisher and amy's a stellar's jay and so we have these drawings of um amy and me uh as birds talking to each other across the mountains and so it's coming in october airmail tory house press an all an all-female project and i can't wait till it's out Oh my God, we're so excited for this. I literally like falling through my screen thinking like, I want to see the cover, which I hear is posted on Facebook. Um, I One of your readers had asked during this conversation whether you were able to be creative during the pandemic. And obviously you have been, and we're so excited to see the fruits of that labor. Like, can we, I'm going to go pre-order it as soon as I get off Zoom. Um, and I'm sure everybody is. So one last question that is for me to you, what do you have to say to your many readers, admirers, Pam Houston lovers who are watching you right now? Um, of course, obviously we'll do anything you tell us to do. So this is, this is your moment. Be political, you know, pick up the megaphone, make art. You know, I think, I think we, yes, here's, here's, I think, you know, I think one of the things we're suffering from in this country in a big way is a collective lack of imagination. I think people, you know, I think a, a lot of people can't imagine that there's 135,000 people dead to this disease and they don't even try. So the thing I would say is like imagination is empathy, you know, we have to be able to imagine ourselves into each other's lives. And a lot of that is like reading about lives that aren't your own, you know, um, just for one thing. <laughs> but, but the act of imagining what it's like to die alone in a hospital and like, why can't you wear your mask at the freaking grocery store? Like, like can you, you, you are so unable to imagine yourself into the body of an 85 year old woman who has to die without her children around her that you won't put a mask on, you know, like we have to be able to imagine what it's like, you know, for a, a, a black woman to see her son go to school in the morning, you know, in, in a neighborhood where there might be white guys driving around, you know, who want to kill him. We have to imagine what it's like for, um, you know, the Bears Ears National Monument, which all of these tribal elders negotiated and, you know, made you know, they, they preserve this land that is so sacred to them and they just have it taken away because, because Trump's embarrassed because Obama did it, you know, <laughs> like because of Trump's insecurity, because of Trump's insecurity. Like we're all dying from, you know, from the insecurity of Trump and men like him. So let's stop dying and let's step into our own power and let's imagine ourselves into each other's lives um, because that's how we're gonna make it better. I love that. Thank you so much. Again, like I just am wrapped. Thank you. And 
I, again, can never say anything that is better than that. Imagination is empathy, and we all have to be empathic. Thank you. And you're getting quite a bath there. I have yeah. to <laughs> <laughs> So those of you who know Pam know that she, she has this great dog love. Can you turn your camera again so that we can see Libby as well as Henry? Parting, parting Libby now. Libby Lou. There she is. Oh. <laughs> She's like, lady, I am having a Z. Please do not bother me while I'm having my nap on the couch, on the nice comfy couch. Oh my gosh, what a treat. Thank you, thank you, thank you so much for spending time with us and inspiring us and, and filling us full of passion and imagination and for your stories and for the letters between you and Amy, which we'll look for in October. And we'll keep watching and reading, so keep posting, please, and be safe. Thank you so much. It's been so nice to get to know you a little bit, Jenna. Thank you for joining us. I'm Trisha Blanchett for a Mighty Blaze podcast. Please join us for our next episode featuring best-selling author Jess Walter. Until then, keep your blaze burning and your pages turning. <laughs>